Welcome to the fourth season of God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I am exhausted parent and one of the endless, Giles Goff. And I'm source maker and talking raven, Phil Coleman. And just a sec, <laughs> why do you get to be one of the endless and I'm uh, the talking a, raven? Do you know what? There's a very good reason for that. And the reason is that I write the scripts. Okay. <laughs> to be honest my commute's going to be a lot easier now that i can fly so that's okay <laughs> and to conclude our mini season looking at horror we'll be looking at sandman netflix's 2022 adaptation of neil gaiman's classic comic book of the same name we'll be looking at the devil's current location representations of rebels and asking which tv version of the devil is the most troubling phil what did you think of this show i absolutely loved this like it was mm-hmm. so so captivating from start to finish and also i know right i haven't actually read any of the comic books but um i very much would like to read them now um it was just so entertaining and i love the idea that all these different facets of humanity and reality each have basically this overarching person thing entity mm-hmm. that just goes i created that nightmare or i created that dream <laughs> and you just like you've got someone to blame <laughs> you know what i mean it's, i think it's quite interesting i'm um, i really enjoyed it i think it's a fascinating show and it's considering the way dream starts as the protagonist in his stories and then ends up being this kind of character who sort of just dips into other people's stories every now and then is a really interesting transition that makes mm. him fit well for the kind of episodic nature of TV. Yeah, I quite like that. Like he starts off as like the main character in his own story and then you see you see his importance in other people's stories. Yeah. With the fact that he is just sort of like a character in the background for the most part and it's it's yeah, it's just dead interesting. Now, it's time for <gasps> Phil's facts. Phil's Facts, my facts. Let's start off with the obvious. Uh, The Sandman is an American fantasy drama television series based on the 1989-1996 comic book written by Neil Gaiman and published by DC Comics. And it tells the story of Dream slash Lord Morpheus, the titular Sandman. In the first chapter... Just after Dream is captured in 1917, this is in the show, several cases of dream disorders happen around the world, which later are named as encephalitis lethargica. This is historically accurate. From 1917 to 1928 in the UK and other parts of the world, people suffered diverse dream disorders. The symptoms were high fever, headache, lethargy, sore throat, double vision, and delayed physical and mental response sleep inversion, and even catatonia. If the case was severe enough, patients might enter a coma-like state. It was first named as encephalitis lethargica in 1917 by Austrian neurologist Dr. Konstantin von Economo, which is a top name. Just Isn't it just? 10 out of 10, 12 out of 10 name. Did they um, ever find out the reason for it? The cause of the disease was never found. Yeesh. It's very clearly... Well, we, we know what it was. It was it was Dream of the Endless, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, oh, ofs. I mean, like, I don't know why they didn't just, like, go to Roderick Burgess and be like, look, lad, look, Rod, <laughs> that fella, he's not a fella. Uh, Neil Gaiman took inspiration from many of his favourite musical artists when designing characters in The Sandman. When he, this, and this is going back to the graphic novel for a moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Desire was based on Annie Lennox. Delirium was based on Tori Amos, and Dream was based in part uh, Robert Smith from The Cure and also a younger version of Gaiman himself. Mm-hmm. 
Lucifer, as artist Kelly Jones remembers, was based on David Bowie. Or Bowie. Yeah. And now, I, I don't know if it's Bowie or Bowie. Just make your own decision on that. I'm going to go with Bowie on this one, I think. Okay, no worries. I'm going to go with Bowie just to be a contrarian. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly Jones remembers and quotes, Neil was adamant that the devil was David Bowie. He just said, he is. You must draw David Bowie. Find David Bowie or I'll send you David Bowie. Because if it isn't David Bowie, you're going to have to redo it until it is David Bowie. So I said, okay, it's David Bowie. <laughs> you know, man knows what he wants. So. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I love it. And he starts off as like sort of 1960s kind of David Bowie where with the kind of curly hair sort of thing. But like as, as Lucifer gets his own show... Uh, sorry, his own his own series of comic books. He's more like 1980s David Bowie, where he's like the thin white duke sort of thing. I looked up a couple of images from the actual comic book for this, just so I'd get some context. And he reminds me, at the start, like Labyrinth Bowie. Somebody pointed out was that if you look at Dream and you compare him with Jareth from Labyrinth, he kind of looks a bit like goth Jareth. Yes, yeah, he just so, yeah. if you coloured in Jareth with just all black everything, yeah. then you kind of get Morpheus. You know, either that or you get Robert Smith if he's been to like a really good tailor. Yeah, I get the Robert Smith. But when, when I read that, I was like, oh yeah, of course, yeah, of course. It looks like Robert Smith, and, you know. And also, he looks more than a bit like Neil Gaiman himself, doesn't he? He did actually take some inspiration. He did ask, say, like, I kind of want it a bit like me too, you know. So yeah, which... like in. In terms of absolutely shameless self-inserts, you know, I like it. The main plaza in hell at the Devil's Palace is a replica of St. Peter's Square, which is located in front of St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican mm -hmm. City in Rome, which we all know is the papal enclave where most popes have lived. And I love that because it doesn't batter you over the head with it. Do you know what I mean? It lets you figure it out yourself. Uh, first of all, hell isn't super well lit for starters. So it's, it's, it's a lot of, of it is in darkness. Sort of qualities, isn't it? Like it's, yeah. um, it needs to go to Ikea and get some fixtures, you know? <laughs> The gospel according to Phil. <laughs> uh, in an interview, uh, Tom Sturridge, who plays Morpheus or Dream, mm -hmm. uh, revealed that Neil Gaiman told him on his first day of filming to stop being Batman with his dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> you can kind of see why you'd be going down that road, yeah. though, you know? like Yeah, 100%. In episode one, Alex Burgess is reading A Handful of Dust by Evelyn Waugh. The film of A Handful of Dust was made in 1988 and directed by Charles Sturridge, who is Tom Sturridge's father, who plays Morpheus. Oh we love a link. Oh, we do. Mm -hmm. In Rose's dream, as she searches for Jed, the surrounding street signs of jumbled letters, referencing the belief that you cannot read whilst you're asleep. Because I read that fact and I was just like, nah. But then I thought back to like some significant dreams that I've had. And one of the main frustrations is that some of the things that... I, there's some things that I just cannot remember properly, mostly text. That's fascinating. And I've never... I, I, and there obviously must have been a study somewhere, which I haven't actually looked up for the purpose of this, but it messaged my head, that one. <laughs> yeah. You know, next time I have a dream, I'm hopefully going to pay attention and be like, right, I'm going to read this bloody street sign, I tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and finally, Neil Gaiman spoke to some of the creators of Constantine, and they approve of the decision to rewrite him as Joanna Constantine for episode three. This is technically a new character, as she's not mm -hmm. the same Joanna, Lady Constantine, who appears in episode six and was part of the original graphic novels. Mm. Uh, Lady Constantine was created by Gaiman as a tribute to Alan Moore, 
who created John Constantine, <laughs> which is quite nice. You know, I like that. I like that. In the Netflix show, um, she's referred to consistently as Constantine. So for the purposes of our discussions going forward, when we talk about Constantine, as in the Keanu Reeves film that we've just covered, the one that's got a sequel coming out, that'll be Constantine. It has a sequel. And Joanne... Nice. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Uh, and Joanna will be Constantine. I might just start calling her Constantinople just to be a contrarian. You know, like, just just, just, just because then at least I'm right in some facet, just in my own Quite world, right. you know? <laughs> Absolutely, 100%. Fantastic. Thank you so much for those, Phil. They really made me giggle. <laughs> Hello, you wonderful people. It's me, your very own Wakandan ambassador, Sefa Ayaku Agri. And I'm here to let you know that God and Film finally has a patron page. And what I need you to do right now is to stick patron into Google, spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N, and do a little search for the God in Film podcast. Because it's the only place in all the kingdoms where you can hear me, Giles and Film talking about God and music on our super exclusive episode, where we dig into that magical place where gospel and mainstream music meet. Here's a little morsel for you. The only person who can actually guarantee these things is indeed the Lord Almighty. It's a fairly conventional move to tell someone you love that you'll never hurt them. Well, you're saying about never let you down or anything like that. I think we can all agree that Rick Astley was never going to yeah. let you down. Obviously, I'll give you Rick Astley or, is, or the, is the only... So, um... yeah. Rick Astley is the exception that proves the rule, yeah, exactly. you know? He's we just we we're no strangers to love. <laughs> oh guys. <laughs> oh dear. If you're cool enough to support this podcast, we promise not to invest the money in our secret stash of vibranium. Every single one of your Wakandan dollars go towards the show's running costs and making more glorious episodes. And if you can't support the show financially, why not tell a friend about the show? Let's be honest. We definitely need more people showing the unchurched that at least some of us can pass for normal. Plus, it's really fun to listen to. Now, back to the show. Now, we were actually only going to do four episodes this season for our, our horror mini season. And then Sandman was coming and then I watched it and I just I just knew that we had to do an episode on Sandman. Yeah. And once I knew that, it was like a, a set of dominoes that fell in my mind because I knew there was only one person I could possibly interview for it. Let's hear what he has to say. My name is Ian Fallon and I am a lifetime uh, comic geek. Uh, I was raised on comics like Thundercats, uh, which I think I first had a copy of when I was four years old. <laughs> um, my dad raised me on 2000 AD, and then I went on and discovered things like uh, Neil Gaiman's Sandman when I was about 17 uh, and discovered Death, the High Cost of Living in my local bookshop. Flipping out, Ian. It is lovely to have you on the podcast. Being raised on 2000 AD comics explains so much about you. Of, of all of my dad's comic book collection, he is under orders not to sell that. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's my inheritance. Quite, quite right, quite right. So I met Ian about 20 years ago, and you were you were reading Sandman comics back then, if not earlier. Ian, can you just tell us, how did the Sandman comics come about? Well, my understanding of how it came about was that... Uh, Neil Gaiman had previously written a couple of comics for DC um, and certainly had been uh, 
writing a previous um, iteration of uh, Miracle Man, also known as Marvel Man, which Marvel now owns the rights to. Uh, Alan Moore had passed the reins of that to Gaiman. So Gaiman had made his break in British comics and then moved away, uh, moved over to American comics. Mm-hmm. And he uh, pitched an idea of a, a Sandman reboot uh, to uh, the editor Karen Berger, I believe her name is. And they turned around and said to him, we want you to do a Sandman book. The only thing that you have to worry about is the name is The Sandman. <laughs> Other than that, you can do whatever you like with it. And so uh, he picked up the picked up that and, and ran with it. Literature hit, history from there on, really. Fantastic. It's quite intense, isn't it? What would you describe as some of the, what the cultural impact of The Sandman is? Oh, what isn't the cultural impact of The Sandman? It was one of the first comic books to get on the New York Times bestseller list. Oh, wow. So, like, it's up there with Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, Mouse. Yeah. It's that huge an impact. And it ultimately led to the, in part at least, to the creation of the Vertigo imprint for DC Comics. Yeah. Which in itself has given rise to so many just classic comic books. So, Sandman actually predates Vertigo. Sandman, I think, was originally started being published in 88. Mm-hmm. So that's like two years after Watchmen, if I'm getting yeah. my timeline correct. Uh, so it was still published by DC Comics um, with, with their For Mature Readers yeah. la- label on it. And then in the early 90s, I think it, when it got to like issue 45, 46, ar- around that kind of level... That's when they launched Vertigo, and right. Vertigo launched with Sandman and Swamp Thing and Hellblazer. Hellblazer. I think those all kind of migrated from the DC Comics imprint to the Vertigo imprint. Yeah. Al- along with those, it launched things like Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis, um, The Invisibles by Grant Morrison, just... Uh, why the last man came along all, all yeah. of these huge huge preacher preacher by by garth ennis huge huge comics real real cultural cultural touchstones as far as the the comic book world goes yeah and then yeah sam sandman was there before vertigo and if it wasn't for sandman it probably wouldn't have taken off because it, it's quite weird in um early on in sandman when at one point Apropos of seemingly nothing, he just goes to the Justice League Tower, and there's little, there's Batman sort of floating around in, in sort of flashbacks and things like that. It seems very incongruous, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's one of those things that, whenever I pass the Sandman co- comics on to a friend to go, look, yeah, ha- if you haven't read this, you have to read this. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things that I always go, look, the first, the first trade paperback is gonna be hard going because. The artwork is, it's not bad, but it's a bit, it's a bit rough and ready. It's a bit, it's not as polished as you'd expect, especially given when you compare it to the later volumes. It's hard to look at, but also it implies, because it's connected to the DC universe, it implies that you're going to have to be like familiar with all of these characters, with all the big backstory, 
that tends to go along with a lot of superhero comics. Yeah. Like it's like that's that's one of the big things that a lot of people get put off by when it comes to comic books is so, there's so many years of superhero lore that you're almost expected to know about before you can even start reading. Do you know what? I've been trying to introduce my wife Claire to comics at the moment and it, finding an on-ramp is difficult because it, it it's and we we all we all have this and as as kids we just adjusted to it um and as adults you're more inclined to go like I'll try something else. I'm so glad what you said about the artwork because Firstly, the covers really put me off because of how dark and scary they were. I thought, I, being a, being an X-Men fan, you know, Jim Lee, Adam Cooper, Andy Cooper, that sort of thing, that was my, my level. And then when you actually open the comic books, and it sort of borders on this, like, cartoonish grotesquerie. My actual way into Sandman was the, uh, the audiobooks with, uh, with James McAvoy as Morpheus. I've not, actually given, I've not actually listened to those, but I've heard that they're very good. Yeah, Cat Dennings' death is really quite something. Uh, Outstanding. So obviously the TV series, the Netflix TV series came out uh, in August and it was absolutely universally critically appraised. But there were some controversies about it probably before it came out. Could you enlighten us on those? I mean, the big ones, as far as I'm aware, are the the noisy pockets of the internet. Uh, (laughs) I don't want to say trolls because... I mean, I don't think a lot. I don't think a lot of them are actually trolling in order to get a rise. I think a lot of them are, are genuinely a little bit closed-minded about things, mm-hmm. uh, and, and these are probably their genuine opinions. But like I say, they're, they're being closed-minded about it. It's things like, not to put a finer point on it, the race of some of the casting choices yeah. rubbed people up the wrong way, and to to prejudge uh, a show just because a person in the comic was white but in the show is going to be black it's a, it, it's not a good look it's not you you do think you might be on the wrong side of history when you're making those kind of you, points you do you do but obviously with the rise of the alt right in the in the mid uh, 20 teens yeah. these people have a, a larger voice than they used to. Yeah, definitely. The thing that lends it a real legitimacy is the fact that Neil Gaiman is so involved, and also he is so much more likely to pick fights with trolls, and oh, he yes. just shuts he's, he shuts them down, and it really is quite delightful. He's not to watch. shy. He's not shy about <laughs> it, and uh, obviously a very eloquent man, especially when he can pick his words in advance by by writing them down. Listen, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I really appreciate it. It's absolutely my pleasure. So, Phil, that was Ian Fallon. What did you think? He seems like such a gentle soul. He just seems like such a nice dude. And I'd, I'd yeah. love to talk comic books with him. He, he just sounds really mm-hmm. nice. I really enjoyed listening to him talk about the origins of the Sandman and, and how it came mm-hmm. about. And um, I think he's very right uh, when it comes to like the, the, uh, the controversies surrounding the casting because it isn't a good look. Really? In fact, it looks pretty bad. Well, one of the things about geek culture is we've spent so long on the fringes, on the periphery of society, that as a group of people, we can be a bit chippy on our shoulder and we're so used to kind of fighting about the things that we care about that we've not really adjusted to actually the fact that geek culture is actually mainstream culture these days. And people who don't know about comics are really the freaks and weirdos. The term you know? gatekeeping comes to mind. That exists in, in many different cultures, but it, it seems especially odd yeah. in a culture 
surrounding mainly fictional universes. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. That's just me. Gatekeepers can get in the bin. Now it's time for <gasps> Finding the Faith in the Film. I thought I'd do it proper this time. And I appreciate that. You know, let's go, let's go out we'll strong. Go, we'll go, we'll go classic. Know? One of the things I enjoyed was how quick and easily Neil Gaiman managed to make this into Christian Bible fanfic without barely pulling a muscle. (laughs) There's a lot of times when you're watching fantasy stuff and even if it's mentioning demons or devils or hell or rest of it, it still will dance around the actual subject of God. And in this, they managed to do it so beautifully in episode four where Dream says to Matthew the Raven as they're walking through hell, saving only the creator, Lucifer is perhaps the most powerful being there is. And right there, in just one line, we have an oblique reference to the existence of God, and that, quite frankly, is good enough for me. Yeah, yeah, it's you like, know? God exists, okay, bye. You know what I mean? That's basically it. Okay, yeah, well, fine. There's a similar experience in Supernatural, when you're like, oh my God, God's here! Yay, I know that guy! <laughs> I like the fact that, you, that God's just like, oh, I, remember, I, I met him once, you know, I saw him in Tesco's. Lovely fella. Oh, come on, come on. If God shops anywhere, it's the co-op. I don't know. I mean, co-op's a bit spenny, isn't it? Like, I do. <laughs> okay, got a, a bit of a brain twister for you. Where is the devil? With my sort of juvenile, this is how I thought when I was a kid hat on. Mm-hmm. Underground. <laughs> that, that, right. that was like my first yeah. thought is like, He's somewhere near the Earth's crust. Like somewhere under the Earth's crust, <laughs> near the centre. Yeah. dead on. So uh, a common belief is to think that Satan and his angels are currently in hell. But interestingly, the Bible does not teach that at all. He's not in hell. <sighs> it's not huh. in hell. Uh, in fact, there's some query as to whether anybody's in hell at the moment. So I'm going to read one section for you from Revelation, that crazy wackadoodle we, book. Oh, we love to see Revelation. it. We love to see it. I will be glad when this series is done and I don't have to quote from the book of Revelation quite so much. Would you, you say know? it'd be a revelation? I would say that once our horror season is done, we're going to have a hugs and puppies season so that I can just focus on all the nice things about Christianity because I feel like I need that to cleanse the God, spirit. God, Do you know God what I mean? <laughs> okay, anyway. God in hugs. God in hugs. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I digress. Anyway, so there's this one section, Revelation 20, uh, verses 1 to 3. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and cast him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him, that he should deceive the nations no more, until the thousand years should be finished. After this he must be loosed for a little time. I never quite worked out why the devil gets sort of bound up for a thousand years, then he gets to come out for a little bit, like a sort of day release program, <laughs> and then he goes back into hell. I really didn't quite figure that out, but okay, whatever. I mean, he is, he is the devil, he's, he's a cheeky chappy, mm-hmm. isn't he? So. so, if you remember from our Constantine episode... It kind of suggested that Satan presently has access to God. Do you remember in the really early on in Job, there's that scene in heaven. Now it came to pass on the day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, that Satan also came among them. Do you remember that? Yeah, he just sort of just turns up and just like, right, okay, I'm here. 
and it's it, it's weird because it, it doesn't seem to present itself as as abnormal it seemed like that's just a regular thing and now that might suggest that satan's home for want of a better word is the heavenly realm or a heavenly realm somewhere that's kind of it's in sort of heaven, heaven adjacent not, you know like heaven like, adjacent like, like, you know like like he's like if 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 heaven's manchester city center he's probably somewhere in gorton mm-hmm. do you know what i mean like it, yeah that sort of thing and uh, uh, for me i struggle with that interpretation because as i understand god the father he can't be around anything impure he can't if he's perfect then everything in his presence has to be perfect so if you are the absolute opposite of that then you just literally can't be around him that's how I understand it. So the idea that Satan pops by and has regular chats just doesn't seem consistent to me. So the way I reconcile that section from Job in my head is I tend to think of Job as a parable. We talked about the idea that it's it seems quite different from other books at the time. It doesn't it feels more like a parable than lived history. But if anyone wants to disagree with me and has a compelling argument, I am all ears. You talk about like um you know, he can't have anything impure, impure yeah. around God. Where does that leave yeah. us? I'll get into that very, very quickly. So obviously, uh, Jesus comes to earth. Um, the Holy Spirit comes to earth. God doesn't come to earth because you you can't really fit him in it. Does that make sense? <laughs> I've um, always imagined him being a really <clears throat> big man. So like... Yeah, a bit, absolutely. You're like, you're like one of the Titans from Attack on Titan, but with skin. Like <laughs> takes up three seats on the bus yeah, kind of deal, yeah. you know? So the idea is, and I can't remember if we've talked about it in the past, but the idea is that when Christians go to be with God, that any parts of you that are impure gets burned away. And the only thing that's left is the things you did for God, the way you try the godly parts of you are the only parts left does that make sense yeah like on, what am i saying that, that that barely makes any sense to me but that's what no, we're it, told it, and i it um... makes sense if that's what you believe in then that is it you know that's how it's written yeah that, in, in that way it makes sense obviously as an atheist i'm like wow what but you know <laughs> yeah that's that's just me i tell you at some point we're going to do some episodes just purely on heaven and just try and see what we can get our heads around in that and see how that we get on. Sounds quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, be more cheerful. Yes, you know? I mean, yeah. So scripture also says that Satan is also active upon the earth. And this is something that makes a lot more sense to me. There's a, a, a line in 1 Peter 5 verse 8. Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. That makes sense to me because that the devil is not actually in hell, but is on earth. And to be honest, just briefly skimming the news is enough for me to think that this theory makes <laughs> yeah, sense. You're not wrong you know? there. Like... My personal headcanon is that the devil actually resides in Stockport, but I'm aware <laughs> that this is a minority I feel view. as though that's more that is very much Gilesian headcanon than it is actual <laughs> actual faith based uh, reality. But... Stockport knows what it did. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that's, that's all I'm going to say. Stockport, <laughs> I like you. Somebody had to Stockport. <laughs> so let's look at the name Lucifer Morningstar. That's what struck me as a bit odd. Anything about that jumps out at you? I, I guess Morningstar. Like, mm-hmm. Morningstar sounds the beginning of something or, the, like, the, yeah. I don't know, it sounds more positive than it does negative. And if you think about it, if you think of him as an angel originally and being the best and the brightest and the most wonderful of the angels, being called the Morningstar makes sense. When the planet Venus is still visible in the morning... It's sometimes referred to as the Morning Star. And that fits for a character who shone brighter than all the other angels. But you know what Lucifer translates as, right? 
Um, I feel like you might have mentioned this to me before, but I cannot recall right now. Lucifer literally translates as morning star. So he's morning star, morning star. That's like Neville Neville, isn't it? You know, the footballer. <laughs> like... well, <laughs> well, I, you know, this is like River Avon or Gobi Desert, you know, where people or, have or taken like, the word for something. like naan bread. <laughs> you know, that's just yeah. bread bread, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I, I thought there must be a reason that he's done this. There must, but I, I looked through. I couldn't find a reason on the internet. And Neil, if you're listening, just let us know what you were thinking about that one because it, it just seems an odd choice. Do you know what I mean? I think maybe what Neil was thinking was just like, damn, that sounds cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I wanted to have a think about like pronouns that are used as well because I think that's quite significant here. All right, so. Neil Gaiman obviously caught a controversy, as we've said, from some sections of the fandom. And by sections of the fandom, I mean tiresome little man babies who objected to Gwendolyn Christie being cast as Lucifer on the basis that Lucifer has largely been portrayed as a man. Now, this overlooks the fact that angels and gender has always been a bit of a slippery subject. Are they male, female, neither, both? The answer isn't super I mean, clear. if you've ever seen... A drawing of a biblically accurate angel. They look like a load of eyes, a load of ri- a load of rings, and yeah. a load of wings. If anything, they look horrifying. And we've mentioned this before plenty of times. But like, yeah, but yeah. They, they, the fact that they're just like, but why is he played by why is, why is Lucifer played by a girl? It's because like, because because rules are moot. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna pick you up on something. The angels that we've taught that those ones with the wings and the eyes and the more wings and even more wings and the rest of it, they are the seraphim. They're either cherubim or seraphim, and they are a very specific type of angel. Not all angels necessarily look like that. Are you with me? That's fair. I think if I did see a seraphim or a cherubim or what what whichever one that is, um I, I would I would poo my pants. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> now, if I saw if I saw one that looked sa- like a man, I'd be like, "Oh, right, it's Dave." But you know, like, <laughs> yeah. In the same way that not all human beings look like Idris Elba, not all angels look like Seraphim. That's the that's the way I can I can that's, square that's it in my fair. head. Okay. There's some question about whether an angel can sort of pick their the gender they want to appear as, depending on what mission they're going on at any given time, or whether they are just the perfectly sublime best of, of both worlds sort of thing and we're not we're not too clear one biblical verse that has been the source of this kind of debate comes from matthew 22 verses 29 to 30 so jesus is approached by the sadducees okay and they are like the first century equivalent of internet internet trolls <laughs> with their hot takes and they're trying to catch him out and they come up to ask him this question about marriage and i'll save you the the actual question because it's flipping waste of time but jesus answered them you are you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of god for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven so that's interesting he's talking about what people are like in heaven and he's saying they're like angels they don't marry so does this mean that angels are androgynous or simply that they just don't marry we don't we don't really know my interpretation of that is be that they are called to a higher cause so to be honest with you I think you're probably right. There are some references to male and female angels in I think Zechariah, but I don't have the I don't have the verse handy at the moment. The line I liked when it came to this debate about gender 
and angels and demons came from the big man neil gaiman himself when he wrote on tumblr dream and i use lord lucifer and lord lucifer uses we us ours when formal and i me mine when informal gaiman wrote beyond that i think he or she or they are all fine so in simple terms when it comes to angelic beings use whatever pronouns you like yeah 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 angels won't be offended and demons hate you already. Yeah. Just don't get all hat up when someone uses a pronoun you're not keen on. It is not an effective use of your that, time. And, and that goes for, like, just general life, yeah. everyone. So just, just, just keep your nose out. <laughs> Basically, yeah. it's none of your business anyway. So. Whatever, use whatever pronoun is going to make that person feel loved is the system I work to, and it seems to have worked out <laughs> well, so I, far. I can subscribe to that. So now we're going to talk about Lucifer as portrayed as like a a rebel okay and this is a this is a slightly tricky one now we've known since the bible that lucifer rebelled against god ever since lucifer has been tagged with amongst others the label rebel but this word has kind of caused problems for us over the years let me try and show you what i mean when i ask you to think of a character in fiction who comes to mind when I say the word rebel? Han Solo. Ah, oh, do you know what? So close. I could have... <laughs> I, I wrote down what your response would have been. I had my fingers crossed that it was going to be Princess Leia. Oh, that is I wrote, very close. I... There's that picture where they've combined the Bowie picture of the with the, the stripes. Oh, and they've yeah, got Leia and it just says rebel, rebel. I, I do you know? really like that piece of art it's quite popular isn't it yeah. um yeah no i don't know why my, my brain just told me to say han solo but it's, it's pretty adjacent yeah. so I, I had down like luke skywalker princess leia even lin-manuel miranda's depiction of alexander hamilton what a guy <laughs> what a guy when we think of rebels we think of people who are cool han solo is cool by any demonstrable way of looking oh at he's it. a bamf <laughs> People who can think for themselves, <laughs> people with a, an independent spirit, that sort of thing. Our culture absolutely lionizes rebels. We adore them. There could be a number of reasons for this. But if I had to guess, I think it would be that much of our pop culture gets imported from America, a country that was literally founded upon a successful rebellion from, you know, us, the British. Yeah, we're still sorry. Well, at least I am. Yeah. <laughs> if the Americans... <laughs> I say, I talk about it like I was there, like... A... If the Americans hadn't won their independence, then it's probably a safe bet to assume that the depictions of rebels coming out of Hollywood may be much less glamorous. Americans would also have free healthcare as well, so, you know. I mean... <laughs> so we've come to assume that if someone is rebelling, that it's because the institution they're rebelling against is somehow wrong. Let's take the Empire in Star Wars, for example. I think on some level, the devil has benefited from this depiction of rebels as cool and interesting. But I want you to take a moment and consider this depiction of a rebel that I'm going to send to you now over WhatsApp. Okie dokie. Tell me what you see. So what I see here is one of the people who broke into, I believe it was the Capitol building not too long ago. It's that particular one that was featured a lot in the news that was wearing the, the fur hat with the horns on it and he's holding an American yeah. flag. So that guy is uh, Jacob Anthony Angeli Chansley who was among the Trump supporters who tried to stop Congress from certifying the 2020 presidential election on 6th of January. The 34-year-old became one of the most recognisable figures from the siege after being pictured wearing horns and a bearskin headdress with a US flag painted on his face. He referred to himself as the QAnon shaman. Okay, that's fine. If you want to be remembered as yeah. that, then okay. 
So had Jacob Chansley been successful, he would have been one of the people who would have installed a dictator in a control of a country with one of the largest military arsenals in the world. Even in his failure, his and the actions of people like him resulted in approximately 150 police officers being wounded, seven police officers being killed, including two committing suicide as a result of the trauma of the terrorist attack that day. I did not know that two people committed suicide from that because of the trauma. That's... Yeah. That's terrifying and horrible. Yeah. And and fun fact, because they committed suicide, they don't count as being classed as dying in the line of duty because uh, Washington, D.C. police don't consider that to be dying in the line of duty. So thanks for that, lads. So that means their, their families don't quite get as many benefits. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Did anybody have dystopia? <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> What's going on, man? That is that sounds like something someone made up and wrote for a villain. Yeah. <laughs> it's insane. It's insane. So going forward, Phil, I want you to think of the devil, Satan, Lucifer, however you want to refer to him, like this. As a, a dangerous idiot who knew he couldn't overthrow God, knew that it was wrong to try, but was so filled with his own spiteful pride that he rebelled knowing that he would take down not only himself and some of his fellow angels but some of god's children as a result when we think of rebels when we think of of satan i want you to think of the QAnon shaman going forward that, yeah i can i can believe in that i can believe that at, at yeah. the very least for today <laughs> you know because yeah. the more i think about it this leads me to my next point one of the most interesting things about this depiction of lucifer is the way she exists as a literary creation as well as a theological one what i mean by that is the collaborative nature of comics and the shared authorship of characters means that one character can be created by one person but then have incredibly different characteristics when written by someone else the best example i can think of is deadpool when he gets introduced in in x-force and he has all the look of deadpool but it's the the, the mouthiness the wit that actually makes him the standout character which comes in much later yeah i get you so lucifer as a literary character from the sandman universe has been brought to life in by my count four different incarnations there's peter stormare in constantine which we talked about two episodes back michael sheen voiced the character in the audible version which was actually my kind of way into the yeah. the sandman world gwendolyn christie in this version of sandman and then tom ellis in the fox netflix show lucifer you familiar with that show? Yeah, I've, do you know? I keep meaning to actually watch that. It looks, mm. it looks quite uh, fascinating. I, yeah, I kind of I've, fun, I've had a... actually. It looks like fun to watch. Do you know what? I'm so glad you mentioned that because that kind of brings up the point I'm going to get to because it's this last one that I find the most problematic. And if I'm being honest, potentially a bit damaging. Obviously, that's not me saying that you shouldn't I watch gonna, it. I was going to say, I'll take it back. I'll take it back. I'm not going to watch it. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm not saying you shouldn't watch it. And frankly, I'm, I'm going to go back and try and watch a bit more. I don't have a problem with Lucifer being portrayed as handsome, suave, effortlessly charming. And quite frankly, Tom Ellis playing him means that any man could go up a step on the Kinsey scale as a result. <laughs> That's fair. But I do have a problem with it being cheeky and irreverent. Putting aside the questionable theology, the whole thing about Lucifer's name being Samael, who Samael is a sort of character from sort of ancient Jewish texts who gets conflated with, with Satan on occasion. The fact that Lucifer refers to God as dad and having brothers and so on. The problem I have is it makes out that something that's dangerous actually isn't that bad at all. 
Now, I am all for sympathetic reimaginings of antagonists, but when the character you're depicting is the literal devil... Yeah, I see what you're saying. Like, like... Then, sh- yeah, showing him as being not that bad after all kind of feels like you're adapting in bad faith. Like, Do you know like what I mean? Showing the, the literally and biblically known as the antithesis just of almost everything that's good yeah. and right and just as, as sort of like a little bit more irreverent. I, 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 can, see how, I can see how somebody such as yourself who you know, as has God as a big part of their life that is very, very important, would probably be like, hang on, I'm not sure I'm not sure how I feel about this. I can say as an atheist, and, and as you can imagine, it doesn't really bother me. And of course, it's the sort of thing we see all the time in media, and I can handle that in short bursts, but when it's five entire <laughs> seasons yeah, yeah. of this dodgy theology and the fact that it just... <sighs> you get to look at Tom Ellis's face, though. You, and you he do, talk... you do, but if I wanted, I could do that in Miranda, <laughs> and he has... Oh, flipping it. Tom Ellis has the face. Not just you know a what face, I mean? Guys, the, the face. face. Yeah. Tom Ellis and David Bowie, two fellas who, after God created them, he said, All right, lads, I am taking the day off <laughs> because <laughs> I have outdone myself today. Do you know what I'm I mean? I'm going to pop myself a Johnny Walker. I'm going to put some records <laughs> on. <laughs> Light a fire. <laughs> So, if I'm honest, I haven't watched that many episodes of Lucifer and none past season one. And that probably has less to do with the dodgy theology and more to do with the fact that it's just not that interesting. But if anyone thinks I'm wrong on this one, I am happy to be corrected. I mean, I think it might also just be your personal taste as well, in in some respects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we're going to get on to the, the last point of this part of the reason i enjoyed the depiction of lucifer and sandman was the way that dream one of the endless and an immortal being himself was clearly scared of lucifer there's a a significant change from the comics in episode four hope in hell do you remember dream has his helmet stolen by chorazon yes and he challenges him to a duel and he chooses lucifer as his uh as his champion yeah so in the book chorazon fights the duel himself but in the TV series, Corazon nominates Lucifer as his champion. And you can see that moment where Dream's face just falls. <laughs> it's almost imperceptible, but it's definitely yeah. there. Because he knows that this is a challenger who could quite conceivably defeat Tom him. Tom Sturridge there just acting the living crap out of it as well. Like, that whole 100%. sequence is just delicious like like that it's almost like a a battle of wits but like made real it's so cool yeah so bloody cool yeah it's really well done so i enjoyed that because as i've stated i think the devil should be portrayed as a fearsome character and when i say that i mean not like someone whom you should be crippled with fear by but someone you should never underestimate or take for granted like fire you know like <laughs> a good way i'm not scared it, yeah, of fire yeah. but it could kill me that i'm hurts. not gonna mess around with it you know i'm not gonna go out my way to to sort of mess around with that sort yeah. of thing yeah, you know sure. so what i really enjoyed though was after dream won the duel there's this brilliant line where he's like all right thanks got my helmet i'll be on my way you've been really honorable thanks for that and then lucifer responds and she says honorable you choke surely the million lords of hell stand arrayed about you. Tell us why we should let you leave. Helmet or no, you have no power here. After all, what power could have dreams in hell? And then Dream responds with this oh, delicious line. He says, you say I have no power here. Perhaps you speak truly. But to say dreams have no power in hell. Tell me, Lucifer Morningstar, what power would hell have if those here imprisoned were not able to dream of heaven? 
oh, I just, I yeah, love that yeah, line. That, that was, I remember what, I remember seeing that line and I was just kind of like, oh. Because you could tell it really stung Lucifer. It really just stuck the knife in there. And it struck me that what has to be the most painful thing for those in hell must be the regret. The knowledge that they could have avoided being there and that they'd give anything to get out. But on some level, they chose it. And Lucifer in particular feels the pang of remorse at what she did and desperately wants forgiveness. But unlike you or me or any living human being, she can't do anything about it. No, she's well, she's the morning star. Well, or he or they. They. Let's go with they. There was some fantastic acting in that scene. That's, it, it, yeah, uh, that was. That's all I'm say. I would say that was probably like one of my top, my top, one of my top three scenes in the whole thing. You know, it was brilliant. Definitely. And that wraps up my finding the faith in the film section. Woo! Yay! And also, oh. <laughs> fantastic listen ladies and gents if you've made it this far thank you so much for joining us on this little bizarre little journey and we are i'm quite happy to put horror to bed now and we will probably never come back to this particular I mean, topic I'm, I'm never and... sleeping again so you know like, that's, <laughs> that's just me <laughs> how about you join us in a few months time when we have our christmas special i'm not going to say what it is but it's definitely a miracle on 34th street oh my gosh hang on wait hang on oh, no oh no oh no and that'll be a lot more cheerful, I promise. In the meantime, thank you so much for, for joining us. If you would like to hear more bonus content from us, you can subscribe to Patreon and hear our God of Music episode, which, you know, is pretty I would awesome. even go as far to say that it doesn't suck. Do you know what I mean? Like It does, it not, does not suck. suck. It's great. <laughs> 100%. We will see you soon. Phil, have you had a good time? Absolutely, man. I, I adore horror. It's nice to be able to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the into the genre, and also with that container of faith as well. I think it's made it yeah. quite interesting to see how faith and horror go hand in hand in a lot of ways. Awesome. Okay, guys, we will see you at Christmas. Bye. God in Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing by Phil, editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh, and our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Minica. Gordon Film is a Dask production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, tell Phil by summoning the Lord of Dreams. Ask permission to walk through the dream world until you get to Phil's unconscious mind, where you can tell him that his points are too esoteric and Giles' biblical knowledge is too shallow. Really stick the knife in. But remember, the Dream Lord won't help you unless you have something to bargain with. But thankfully, some nice jammy dodgers should do the trick. <laughs>